John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 414.GE1107, certificate number 29469, English as she is spoke. My hovercraft is full of eels. Huh? My hovercraft is full of eels. I think I've mentioned it before, but you know that my band named The Long Winters, although it seems like very apropos, given that I grew up in Alaska and that we live here in the Northwest, a place the winters are long. Eight-month gray, gray drizzle. And because we're so, we have such a northerly latitude, the sun um, during the peak winter days goes down at 4.30 and doesn't come up until what seems like noon. They're pretty short days. Yeah. I got to say, just in the last month, having sunset go from 4 p.m. to 5 p.m. has made a big difference in my outlook. On it's those. really nice. And it's one of the, the one of the arguments against daylight savings time for places like this, because the day that it comes into play, it's like it, life really goes off and stays off. <laughs> it, 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 yeah, that day and it now comes in November, I think. And yeah. it really does move sunset from like 5.30 to 4.30 overnight, and it's bad ugh, news. Ugh. Give us daylight savings time all year. And people getting up at the crack of dawn, yes, it'll be dark and miserable for them. But getting up early is always dark and miserable. That's right. And people who get up early, I have no sympathy for. They deserve to be miserable. They do. I have a couple of friends. We were walking the other day together, socially distanced, and one of them said, yeah, my kid's a teenager now, and he's he started to sleep in. I'm like, oh, really? You know, like... I always love to hear stories of people that sleep in because it makes me feel better. I was like, sleep in till when? And he's like, well, he sleeps all the way. I mean, he's still in bed at seven. And I'm like, what time do you normally get up? And both of these friends of mine, people that I think are normal, well-adjusted people were like, oh, they're both up and up and at them before six. You and can't just, blame people. I do blame them. They are born that way. No, I blame as them. Lady Gaga would say, "People, ha- we have um, chronotypes. Uh, Some people are just larks, and they are their brains are productive at six a.m. and good for them. It must be a virtuous feeling to do two hours of good work and then knock off for breakfast. That's the problem. It's the connection of it with virtue that I despise. Because anyone like me who wants to go to museums that um, are dedicated to old cars or uh, Air Force equipment knows that those museums will open at 6 a.m. and close at 3.30. That's when their last um, 80-year-old volunteers go home. <laughs> That's right. That's when they go to dinner. That's so infuriating. 
Uh, but no, in fact, the Long Winters derived uh, our band name from an example of uh, what is variously called Japanglish or English, uh, which it, which refers to a, um, a kind of tendency, or not tendency, a fashion, I guess, in Japan, to use English words as decorative elements that are sort of meant to convey sophistication or sort of an international um, uh, quality where where the the actual translation of the words is irrelevant to and, their usage. And in my experience, this was true in the 70s and 80s in East Asia when, you know, many of the people looking at your t-shirt would not even know the Roman alphabet. So right. they really are just admiring the shapes and the cosmopolitan appeal of English, yeah, and as and a sign of American coolness, maybe it's a I, the, the internet is full of examples, and people love this this kind of mistranslation is something that it has universal appeal, seemingly to people that are uh, even remotely interested in language, because the transliterations, the little you know, the unintentional humor that comes from a word salad. Uh, it excites the same part of our brains, I think, that like puns. It's funnier than any joke somehow. Yeah. Maybe just because, you know, I feel like our senses of humor are so rarefied here in the late 20th century, early 21st century that, you know, we've seen all the kinds of jokes you can explain, which means, you know, we've laughed at all those formulae and now we need something new, some new harder stuff. And what that means is kind of Monty Python style absurdity where, you know, why did that guy just say he has a ferret up his nose? What does that even mean? Why am I laughing harder at that than at an actual well-constructed joke, you know? And and that's the beauty of these kind of word salad things is they are close to, they're recognizable as structures we know, but something's gone wrong. And we find that funny. Yeah, and... Especially ones that get close but no cigar, right? Mm -hmm. Um like uh, the Chinese menu issue where, you know, um, where a, a, a rooster is reasonably referred to as a cock, but that's not a coinage that we use now. It clearly came from a archaic dictionary, and, uh, and now we all, we, you know, we chortle over it. I grew, I grew up surrounded by, you know, the, the close cousin of, of Japanese, English, you know, the Konglish, I guess, kind of a, Korea just discovering its own its own textile industry, discovering the Roman alphabet and English graphics, and uh, yeah, you you could not go five minutes in Seoul when I was a kid without somebody just wearing a shirt saying the most um, random gibberish, you know, clipped clipped from a. It was hard to tell whether somebody had been attempting to say something and had got it wrong, which is often the case, or if somebody just picked three words in order in a newspaper because they liked the way the letters curved. I saw a guy wearing a jacket that said combination bra and dicky on the back. Hmm. And See? love it. Love know, it already. You don't really wear a bra with a dicky. <laughs> and to this day, you know, and we and we thought that was great. And to this day, my kids speak fondly of uh we were in San Francisco once and we rented an apartment for the week we were down there. And it was just it was a place out in the sunset, so probably a Chinese American landlord, I wouldn't be surprised. And the garbage can in the kid's bathroom, which my son actually spent a night um, barfing into because oh, of good. some kind of, you know, food poisoning from who knows fish and chips on the wharf. 
said on it, friendship, and then below it in smaller letters, childhood, a time. <laughs> That's wonderful. Isn't it great? Yeah. It's it's almost poetic. Yeah. My favorite is a t-shirt that in big letters says, hey, and then under it, it says, the element of hello. <laughs> And it's like, yes, hey is the element of hello. I like those words. You can tell somebody was trying to express some some kind of uh, thought or slogan. Yeah. Um, and it didn't go well, but, you know, who could disagree that childhood is a time? It is. That hey is an element of hello. Yes. Um, they're, they're undeniable, these, a lot of these uh, graphics. And a, a, a friend of our band, uh, she was the girlfriend of a member of another band who was working with our band at the time. And I was reminded of this, although I had never forgotten it, uh, when we played our Western State Hurricane shows uh, early in 2020, she actually came to the show. I hadn't, I hadn't seen her in 20 years. And um, by way of reminding me who she was, she said, do you remember how the Long Winners got their name? And of course, I recognized her and, and was able to not only tell her the story, but you know, remind her that I had never forgotten. I tell that story all the time. Uh, that she was in Japan while we were recording our first record and sent a photo of a t-shirt on a, you know, young Japanese girl just sort of wearing a, a, an English t-shirt. And it just said the long winters. And there was a picture of a duck or something, you know, just un completely unrelated. And we saw it and it just seemed like such a great band name in the, in the style of the time. Were you ever able to track down the actual T-shirt? Did it come back around when the band became known? No, I'd never. I've never actually seen it in real life, and I feel like sometimes as a kid, I remember I never saw the same shirt twice. Yeah, it seems right. like that's right. It just feels like a thing that they had small print runs and it got made, and then it, it got worn, and now it's gone forever. I mean, if a futureling is is uh, is collecting T-shirts from the the streets of Japan. The last and time finds it. That had, this hasn't ended. Like the last time I was in Japan, uh, you know, even high-end department stores would sell licensed peanuts stuff where the characters were just saying the most random things like uh, Snoopy just yelling the word swordfish. <laughs> something or saying something about a swordfish steak. Yeah. And, you know, uh, something Snoopy is very famous for having strong feelings about. And today in Japan, you know, so many people speak English as a second language. You know, they could have picked any number of other panels, the kind that would have been chosen by a, a U.S. Uh, licensee. Right. But they had no problem with Snoopy just saying, I'm making a swordfish steak, his, his classic catchphrase. <laughs> I wonder, you know, we're describing a, a time even 20 years ago when English was not as as commonplace in Asia. Uh, and now that it is, you know, now that a whole other generation has grown up speaking and reading it as a second language, I wonder if it has now become, if those mistranslations or those just, just absurd translations, if that hasn't become its own source of. Like, can they see the, the, the fun of it too? Yeah. Hipster amusement. Like, Oh, you know, that that's something unique to our culture. Just like us looking back at bell bottoms or. Yeah, sure. Like, uh, like, like hamburger, hamburger, bang, bang. I wonder if, um, I mean, Japan has been more resistant to English as a second language than most places just right. because of, um, generally it's, it's sense of its own culture, you know, like we do things right. We don't care if, um, if, Gaijin can't navigate the train station. Right. Um, uh, you're talking about putting up English, uh, having English as a tourist language. Yes, but also I think also related to the idea that um, 
you know, to be a world power, people should speak English as a second language. I think that's less common there than it is in Scandinavia or right. even Korea or Taiwan. Right. Um, and it comes it's, from that same sense that, you know, our language is pretty good and we are doing great. Well, it's also a sort of isolationism, right? I mean, it's sure. not like they replaced English with anything else. It's like... Japan first. Do you have other um, examples of this you want to talk about? or Because or, I'm interested in the meta topic of whether or not this, you know, there's an element of of, uh, of ridiculing another culture in laughing at their attempts to, to, to speak your, you know, good-hearted attempts to use or speak your language that don't go well. It's, it's, it's a kind of imperialism. Well, except it, it goes every direction, right? I mean, there are so many examples of people in... in Spanish-speaking countries uh, where they are, you know, they're mocking the kind of uh, Spanglish, but coming from the other side, our attempts to, you know, I mean, sure. to, my own attempts to speak Spanish to people are so laughable. And I think the, the the ultimate example is Americans in Paris, where we're just scorned uh, for uh, for making any attempt, uh, and that's that's as much pronunciation as anything but <laughs> but a, a lot of you know a lot of what happens is you do you learn phonetic pronunciation but you really really want to impose your own grammatical rules on other languages because other it just doesn't make sense otherwise learning vocabulary is is uh relatively easy but you want to and I do this I do this all the time you know you insert your uh your newfound mastery of of gendered nouns into your germanic grammar and try and pass it off as italian that said i do i do think it's a little funnier when it goes the other way you know st stories from indigenous people making fun of settlers screwing up their language um, like the, the story about how um you know the word canada just means village and you know cartier's expedition misunderstood some some guy saying, yeah, Canada's over there. And they were like, I'll call this land Canada. And the guy was really saying, oh, that's my village, you know? Yeah, right. Like, to me, those stories are funnier than, um, you know, than saying that you're saying English with an R, you know, because it's got now it's got the overlay of uh, ha ha ha. We speak the good language right and they speak it wrong. It's funny because I can't put myself in uh, I can't put myself into Tokyo as a native and imagining like how much of that. Um, how how much of that misappropriation of English as a as just a style of yeah it wouldn't bother you I guess you know there is an opposite of this which yeah. is um uh English speakers getting tattoos of sure shanti on the back of their neck or yeah whatever. and then it turns out you know the Chinese character they got is um, backwards or it's a it just means um traffic light or or whatever well I think and maybe it wouldn't bother you. you'd be like hey I got a cool looking. I got a cool-looking character that conveys Chineseness. Who's actually going to know that I, they screwed up the strokes? This was this was super common, I think, in the U.S. in the 1980s. The the you know putting just weird kanji characters on T-shirts, sleeveless T-shirts, and you know think about all the Rising Sun headbands that new wave artists <laughs> uh, tied around their heads, which you know which were like very symbolic and very specific, not just a thing that you put on your head because you were the keyboard player. And you wouldn't mind if you were told it had grammatical errors, you know? Right. It's just like, what are you talking about? It's just a fashion. That's not it's what just it's a thing. So, yeah, maybe that's what a, an Asian person would say about the grammatical errors in their wastebasket. Who yeah, cares? Yeah, and I think it's probably a, um, a method of dealing with the 
you know, the onslaught of English, it, in, in a way, it's kind of a, a repurposing of it as a, oh, yeah. as a decorative element. In the same way that, that, you, that I think over time, like the kind of Orientalist impulse to use Arabic as, a, um, as like a decorative border, right. even. You know, like it's such, a, it's such a beautiful written language, but it's so far from being interpretable that it just becomes a motif. It's a it's a nice f- kind of floral looking swirly border on something. And the Roman alphabet compared to um like the the painterly quality of of written Japanese, it's got to look what? architectural or modern uh because it's so typeset. There's too many things going on. Yeah. Like we have one letter that's a circle. Right. In addition to, which kind of stands out in all our other weird kind of sticks and arms letters. There's a circle but, with a tail. But then there's circle with a tail. Yeah. Like, why does circle need a sequel? Like, if, if there's one of those, there should be one of those, I think. Well, I mean, t- I, I challenge you to tell the difference between lowercase d, lowercase p, lowercase b. I mean, there is that. Lowercase g. I mean, they're just, it's the same letter, just flipped around. You know, learning the Korean alphabet as a kid, you could really tell it was kind of a designed thing by scholars making a written language in recent times because the symbols were chosen to not look confusable, you know, between themselves, among themselves. Right. You know, they were chosen for, so, you know, it's, it, it doesn't have, a, it's a little bit utilitarian compared to the complexity of Chinese characters or some of the beautiful curves of Japanese. It's a lot of little circles and shapes. It looks like a, a, a kitchen gar- uh, junk drawer got upset. Yeah. Um, but it does not have the English problem of letters that look the same. Um, yeah. You know, it's, English it's, it's is logical. just, it's just like macaroni and, uh, well, no, like, like, uh, like broken spaghetti and, and spaghetti O's. You've got the P and the B that kind of look like each other, but then there's more like the A M N V thing going on. Right. I guess there are some curves there. Yeah, but there, there's not enough to, you know, there's the P and the B have bumps. And then you've got all these kind of broad vertical diagonals like M, N, V, W. It, they don't play well together. It's, it's why typeface design is so interesting because it's really hard to make English look beautiful on a page. You really have to make a lot of correct choices and compromises. Yeah. Well, and especially I think as, as these languages, you know, as, as English has evolved – as a written language, a lot of the, a lot of what I think would have made it a slightly more beautiful, which, which is to say like the archaic forms E at the end of certain words, a lot more. I mean, I think thy and thee are, are more beautiful than, did I say thy? Yeah. Yeah. Thy's correct. Yeah. And it's, and it's a, instead of your, it's, it, I mean, just compare the two, thy and your, one of them is, Think more comely. You think the way it looks or the way it sounds? The way it looks. I, I I like the way it sounds too. Thy. Yeah, it's a it's Thee a thou thy. It's more. I don't know. It has a. It, it just just imagining the word thy as someone that did not use the Roman alphabet. It has a. It has just a graphical, pleasingness to it that your kind of doesn't. It's hard to divorce it from all its associations, you know, the fact that it does sound pleasantly archaic to us. It's, it's, you know, it's hard to strip it away yeah, and, and make it just a sound or a series of lines. But, you know, just that, the kind of hash, hash markness of it, 
as opposed to. Oh yeah, I just wrote it. It looks good. Yeah, it's a nice looking letter. Don't nice get, looking book. Don't get me wrong. And then I wrote your, and I was not so into it. You yeah, got, you got one of the full curve. You got the circle. Circle. Then you've got the kind of the full curve letter, and then you've got the cup. R is the worst because it's got a bump and a stick. At least P and B just have bumps. I find it very difficult to make my R's legible. What's the ugliest letter? It might be R. I mean, G is a problem because R doesn't, uh, neither R are comfortable. And I have two R's in my last name. I'm thinking of uppercase letters, I guess, because that's how I print, but. Lowercase R is the worst. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm not a super I mean, big my, fan of H, frankly. When I, when I write, you know, my name has so many N's in it. But it really does, when you see it written out in, in print, it looks like kind of hen scratching. It looks like it's almost runic. Yeah, it's just not a good look. Ken Jennings, although it's, you know, it flows right off the tongue. No, it sounds pretty good. And I'm sure there, I'm sure in maybe in Hebrew or something, there's Sanskrit, there's probably some language where it looks beautiful. I wish there was another N in it. I wish it was Ken Jennings. It's already hard enough to anagram. Where would you put the other N? Jen N. I'd put another E and N after Jen. I'd make all the N's double N's, including the one before. Yeah, the one before the G. Yeah. Well, in fact, the N at the at the end of Ken should be two N's. Sure. Why not? Ken. Go all out. The the great grandpappy of this kind of English um, and Spanglish, uh, like broken English mis mistranslations received as comedic mistranslations that were intentionally propagated as jokes yeah when they were initially meant in earnest or presumably in earnest was a phrase book that took on the title english as she is spoke although that's n- that that title was never present in the original oh edition. is that right no because it is kind of suspiciously it does seem like an english speaker's idea of how a foreigner would screw it up, you know, getting, you know, adding the gender to the pronoun where it shouldn't be. Well, except that it is, that is exactly what characterizes the actual translations or actual text of the book. Uh-huh. Uh, it's just that the, the, the title of the book was much more sort of uh, formal. It was. What is the title? Uh, so the title was, I think, translated a new, a new guide to conversation uh, between Portuguese and English. And it was, it was written and published, uh, written by a man, uh, like uh, written by an author who cannot be found uh, by the name of Pedro Carolino. And it was meant for, um, Pedro Carolino was a Brazilian and this was meant as a, as a way of introducing Portuguese speakers from Brazil to, Conversational English, because uh, and and it was published in uh, originally in eighteen fifty three. Oh, it's old. It's very old. And eighteen fifty three, you know, that would have been a time when the Americas were were developing a you know an intra America hemispheric uh, bond. That's right, and 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 trade and but but probably very little um, travel between the two, except for as you say merchant marines or whatever right not a lot of um not a lot of pleasure travel well but this would have been the heyday of whaling mm. and whaling ships would have been uh right. stopping Atlantic. at the you know the coast of brazil all up and down yeah um it would have been 
it would have been, you know, the the dawn of 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 a, a, a great increase in trade and exchange. Business travelers. Yeah, right. That's right. And and so there was a there was perceived to be, I think, uh, within the publishing world, a new demand for phrase books of all kinds. Right, translations, not. Not just dictionaries, but ones where you say, you know, how do I get to the hotel? Yeah, the European ones are for a traveler, a British person on the continent, for yeah, example, or, yeah. or vice versa. And and not, not trying to make you fluent in the language, but to give you a reference guide to, to memorize 15 phrases or to be able to search through and find just the phrase you're looking for to make it not just an exchange of information, but a kind of conversational, um, sort of what we hope that Babblefish will do for us. A little, but very primitive and limited version. Yeah, and I've used these phrase books. I'm sure you have too. Still, you still on the back of a Lonely Planet or a, or a Frommers or a Foders, you will still see. Here's how to say, how much is the change, or where is the train to blank, or right. And they almost never work as well as you want them to. I mean, lo- can lonely- you imagine trying to use one of those in, <laughs> with a language like J- Japanese or something, where you're just reading out a transliteration? And a lot of the phrase books do have, and the, and and our book today, um, English as she has spoke, does have this feature. There are three columns. The first is the phrase in Portuguese. The second is the translation into English, and then the third column is the phonetic pronunciation. Right, and it, using pr- Portuguese phonetics. Right, and yeah. I can't imagine trying to phonetically speak Japanese. You see all the time in film. Uh, and, and in pop music, yeah. In No Country for Old Men, Javier Bardem, when he was cast in the film, did not speak English huh. well enough to perform the role, and a lot of his lines he learned phonetically. Uh, that's you know that's the story. Well, of course, when you go to English, you have a lifetime of listening to English song lyrics and and uh, actors talking. Right, you in get subtitled the, movies. You get the sound. Whereas you know, if it's me stepping out of a plane in Indonesia. I don't know if reading a, a series of phonetic syllables is actually going to be like I've had the I've had the experience of getting in a cab in a country and just saying a proper name in what I think is the correct way, and the you know the cab driver in Bangkok is like I have no idea what you're saying, yeah. and I'm like, but it's called this. It's this is the temple. I'm going to keep saying it, and he's you know and he's thinking I you know this guy is saying it. he's not punishing me. Right. I'm saying it so badly he literally does not know what I mean. Yeah, I I I, I may have even told this story before, but at one point I. I was in uh, in the Medina in Fez, and I went up to a tobacconist and pointed at a pack of camel cigarettes and said, you know, pack of camels. And the guy said, what? And I was like, camels, camels, cam- camels, and pointing at the pack of cigarettes. And he's like, huh? And I'm like, camels, camels. Cam-. And I tried every pronoun, you know, and there are camels in Morocco. <laughs> and I could not get the pronunciation of camel. And he looked back at where I was pointing, and he pulled a pack of cigarettes down and said, Winston's? <laughs> and, it, and it was at that point that I started smoking Winston's uh, because I couldn't, I couldn't get my, my camel out. Mindy and I were just talking about this last night because we were watching this Bergman movie, and there are literally times where you will see a proper name in the subtitles, and you do not hear the actor say it. Right. And it's not because they didn't say it. And it, it depends on the language. It's very common. I've noticed in Chinese movies, in you know movies where the— um, the pronunciation is so specific and the vowels so different from how they would sound to us that you literally don't see the actor, hear the actor say the thing. I listen for it all the time. I watched Ip Man the other day, which oh, is yeah. this fantastic uh, That's great. movie. And, you know, Ip Man is full of, of proper names, including Ip Man. 
And I, you know, it goes by and you're just like, he must be saying it somewhere in this sense. <laughs> no, absolutely no sign of it. The secret of Omnibus is I was watching a Bergman film and you were watching It Man. It Man. That's right. That's, <laughs> the, the, that's the whole enterprise. Right tells there. you all you need to know. <laughs> so the suspicion. Uh, so what happened was uh, the uh, the guide to conversation between French and Portuguese written by per- Pedro Carolino was published in France um, because at the time, you know, the like France had had a real publishing industry. You you wouldn't find a, a Brazilian homegrown. It's more prestigious to go with a European publisher. I think so. But, but more than that, the, um, the book is kind of a, not a ripoff, but it, it was greatly inspired by a book from 20 years before or 15 years before, uh, the guide to conversation between, uh, a, a, a new guide of conversation between French and Portuguese. And that was written by a, um, by a very kind of famous and, and respected translator by the name of Jose de Fonseca. And it was a, you know, it was a popular translation book for a Brazilian audience. Well, French and Portuguese, there would have been a lot more opportunity given that they're neighbors in Europe and neighbors in uh, South America. And neighbors in South America. French Guiana is right next door. So it would have been, you know, that, that would have been a, a book that, uh, th- well, that had a 20-year head start on uh, on the translation or a phrase book between Portuguese and English because just a lot more opportunity. And someone like Jose de Fonseca, clearly fluent in both languages, wrote, uh, you know, a kind of comprehensive guide that was that was into multiple printing. But he's Brazilian as well. He's not from Portugal. Right. This is a Brazilian book. Okay. Right. Um, and so, you know, following on with the success of that book, the same publisher, J.P. Eiland, uh, put out, uh, I guess, I guess they had a, they had a second edition of the French to Portuguese book. And then in 18, uh, it came out in 1853. And then in 1855, uh, demand, uh, produced this comprehensive volume of English to Portuguese or Portuguese to English. Yeah. And it was credited to Pedro Carolino and Jose de Fonseca. Because Carolino, they hadn't collaborated? No. Fonseca had, for from all accounts, absolutely zero to do with this. Uh, Carolino put his name on it, both to give it the imprimatur of respectability, but also forensically uh it was kind of reverse determined that the way this book was written was that carolino got fonseca's portuguese to french phrase book and then had access to a very archaic french english dictionary <laughs> and uh, by the words, you know, by some of the very archaic words that ended up in the phrase book, it's clear that the French English dictionary dated to the 18th century. Wow. Or maybe older, because some of the coinages, for instance, um, you know, the uh, the word for kidneys is reins, which is a 
like we don't call our kidneys reins. But that, that, that's a biblical. It's yeah. It's like the renal artery or whatever. Right, and so so the last time that anyone, you know, the last time that that was ever in common parlance or would have been in a dictionary as the first word for kidneys, uh, you know, dates to. 1700 that's or not, that's before. not so unusual though that because old reference books do kind of stay in circulation like that often because they've fallen out of copyright right and, and they can be easily reprinted by a company that wants to have a dictionary out or or that a dictionary is yeah right i mean a, a dictionary doesn't even now kind of go out of sure utility right how old is the the american standard that you use for this show Oh, that's it's you know it's the eleventh edition of the Merriam-Webster Collegiate, but there hasn't been a new edition of the Merriam-Webster Collegiate in a long time. Right. I mean, I still have my nineteen sixty eight Encyclopedia Britannica's, and, and consult them regularly. I don't consult them for like uh, for like space travel, but I but you know if I'm talking about mollusks, it's probably still pretty accurate. And it's just expensive for a for a place to produce a, a reference work in house. So you just say, well, okay, the 1921 dictionary, this copyright is lapsed. We'll, you know, we'll just reprint that. This entry in the omnibus brought to you once again by our friends at Mac Weldon. We love Mac Weldon. Thank you so much, Mac Weldon, for supporting our and so many other great podcasts. I'm not going to say I don't love our other sponsors, but I am not wearing their underwear right now. No, you love our other sponsors, but, but we, we... Few of them make underwear. Yeah, we are wearing the underpants of the gods here. And the other items... Uh, pants and socks and I know you love the pants. You like shirts and jackets. Yeah, I got the sweater and the jacket and I love them both. It's you can tell immediately when you open your little package that comes in the mail. You get a little Christmas moment and it you can tell it's good quality stuff. Yeah, and what's nice I think about Mac Weldon is they don't overwhelm you with 10,000 options. It is a very uh concentrated and curated selection of things. Yes. I get, uh, what's it called? Paralysis of choice when I am clothes shopping. And I appreciate that they have three things, each in three colors in the, of the thing I want. That's the kind of choice I can do. And they're very interested in technological fabrics. I mean, the thing that excited me about it at first was they have a fabric that is interwoven with microscopic threads of silver. Finally. Yeah. Which really appealed to the anti vampire in me. But they I've, been, also, I've been asking for years, where is the underwear with silver thread? Yeah. Well, and it, it's an antimicrobial, but they also have products like Warm Knit and Dry Near and Air Knit X. You're just making stuff up now. <laughs> A lot of things. I'm not sure how they mean me to pronounce. We love their free loyalty program where you get different kind of levels of status with them. You can almost immediately get to free shipping and then you start to get 20% discounts at higher levels. What fun. Yeah, it's really nice. And also, Mack Weldon has a guarantee. So if you don't like the underwear, you can keep it, and they'll still refund you the money. No On the other hand, asked. why are you keeping the underwear you don't like? Well, that's the thing. It's just a pain in the neck to send things back that you don't like. But they're confident you're going to like it. You'll come around eventually. I bet it never happens. Or you'll give it to a friend that will immediately become a Mack Weldon right. devotee. So they're gonna, they're, it's a win-win situation. Here's what we want you to do. You can get 20% off your first Mack Weldon order today by going to MacWeldon.com slash Omnibus and entering promo code Omnibus. So easy to remember. It's MacWeldon, M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com slash Omnibus. Promo code Omnibus for 20% off. MacWeldon reinventing men's basics. If you think about the 1850s, there have been incredible advances in... um, industrialization in machine and in 
like democratic revolution, but for the most part, life remains unchanged. Uh, you're still getting you're still getting your vegetables to market via horse cart, right? This is this is this incredibly f- fruitful moment in history where everything had been the same for twenty five thousand years, except through the uh, the invention of the stirrup. And that was a big day. <laughs> and every year we celebrate stirrup day. <laughs> but then all of a sudden everything's going going crazy. But if you had an English French dictionary on the shelf that dated to uh, you know dated to 1650, it still would have been applicable. Anyway, it was very clear that Pedro Carolino, whoever he may be, did not actually speak English. Did not first of all did not speak English, and second of all maybe didn't speak French. <laughs> Because the trans the translations are like agrammatical, but but clearly it's a game of uh, language telephone, where w- what it's attempting to do is translate commonplace phrases, but they've been through the ringer. You see this today on the internet, where um, you know Google Translate will produce this kind of uh, Pedro Carolino like work. And if you're trying to read a news story that only came out in a Polish paper, um, I just saw this yesterday where somebody was put up a Polish news story and they were like, why did they describe um, the bear cub as a chicken? And a, a native Pole had to come into the comments and be like, actually, we use the same word for an animal young. You know, a young chick is the same as a bear, bear cub. The auto translate didn't know what context to use for that word here. They put chicken. It should say polar bear cub, you know, but because it's just following a series of rules, like I'm sure Pedro was doing, right? Um, you get hilarious uh, results. And you, uh, there's actually like a whole, that's a whole subgenre on the internet now. There's a there's a kind of popular comedy video, popular for I think whatever obvious reasons, where they translated the dialogue from Titanic into Japanese using Google Translate, and then retranslated it back into English and they perform, you know, the, the, uh, the classic, uh, iconic scenes from, from Titanic, but in this, you know, this garbled, doubled translated language. When automatic translation was just in its infancy, uh, and I don't think, I think this is actually, I think this is actually a, um, a myth. I don't think this ever actually happened, but there's a case of uh, a computer being fed out of sight, out of mind translating it into some different human language, natural language and back and getting invisible insanity. <laughs> when, when dragon dictation first came out, they had a, uh, you know, they do that thing where they're like, you know, re- talk, talk into the dictation machine and let it learn your diction and, yeah. and, uh, and train it to understand you. And I, I think back in the, Back in the early days, I truly believed that computers were learning, you know, that they were listening and- It's because you saw war games. Learning. That's right. I believed in it's war Joshua. games. Joshua. What's he, what's he doing in there? Now I have no idea what, what that, that actually is. But I, uh, the first time I tried to work with Dragon Dictation, I didn't read their paragraph. I just started dictating to it. And the page and a half of- of the results were some of the most poetic language I'd ever encountered. And I really mind it for lyrics, for lyrics and for imagery, because even, even if it, 
gave me a nonsensical couplet, by changing a few words or tenses within it, you could see the kind of like we're talking about, you could see like a beautiful truth in it that completely unrelated to whatever I'd set into the machine. It was just generating random words. Sure. But uh, but that's kind of the yeah. you know, that's the beautiful thing about a noteworthy turn of phrase will be memorable because it will stand out, and it's hard to generate ideas that stand out linguistically. Right. So what you want to do is to automate the standing out part, and then you can figure out yeah the right. poetry pick through it and yeah. and and um and get kind of like refrigerator magnets right you yes. you find um and that's what I admire about poets so they can do it without the the Refrigerator magnets. Well, you think you think it, you think they're all you think Ezra Pound is just using a ENIAC? <laughs> There's definitely a Madonna record that, uh, on close analysis, it was realized that every word on the Madonna album came from a set of refrigerator magnets. So it was. Did she ever admit it? She never admitted it. I don't think, but it was clear <laughs> that it had been composed uh, by throwing things in a fridge. <laughs> yeah, music makes the people. Come together. Oh. Uh, so this book, published in 1855, under the title O Nuovo, no, no, my Portuguese accent is terrible, but O Nuovo Guia de Conversacao. How, how, how is that? Oh, the, the sea Conversac with the... the thing the, the sea with the thing under, I think, is just a soft sea, so it's Conversacao. Conversacao. Yeah. Uh, um, Portuguese... De, or no, Portuguese e Inglês. I'm with you. Thank you. Thanks, Port- everyone, for, for, uh, for sticking around. Um, it entered the, the public domain, I guess, or entered the world. Entry. And for several decades was just out there. Um, Sitting on shelves being used by... Uh... Living in its world. It was published in France uh, and found its way, I think, to Portuguese speakers and and didn't encounter enough resistance in, in the form of English speakers going, what? That it didn't, uh, that, it, that it wasn't used in instruction. And by I think definition, it was. the only people buying that book do not speak English. Every exactly. single customer is uniquely qualified to not understand the problem with it. Here was here's the introduction. Uh, the 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 problem with with this topic is that most of the people for the last hundred and fifty years that have rejoiced in the publish uh, publishing of English as she has spoke um, just enjoyed it as a kind of Dadaist found, like found uh, object. Yeah, it was. Uh, it it became in the English speaking world uh, a book that you would pull out at a cocktail party and read aloud from to great. Amusement. Does that, uh, does that mean it was reprinted? Like, I don't want to jump ahead. Uh, so, so it was. It became it became very popular in the English world when it was kind of, I mean, gradually discovered by the literary set, the intelligentsia in both England and America, almost simultaneously. As a funny curio. As a funny curio, and one that was, um, Mark Twain wrote the introduction to the American version. And in it, he said, nobody can add to the absurdity of this book. Nobody can imitate it successfully. Nobody can hope to produce its fellow. It is perfect. And Twain, I don't think, 
he was not aware of the French English dictionary. Or he didn't know the reason for its craziness. No. He, and maybe that makes the joke even better. It did. He believed that this was the product of a earnest Portuguese translator just garbling, you know, not speaking English very well, but taking a good stab at it and coming up with this garbled uh Which way is funnier? Book. They're both pretty good. They're both pretty good. It was it the there was an English a UK version of it published contemporaneously with the American one and that was uh the introduction was written by an English translator or a, you know a UK translator. Um it was published in the UK by Field and, and Tour and uh, the introduction was written by James Millington and he was I think much more aware of the fact that it had gone through this French-English dictionary. But the French-English dictionary component of it explains a lot, namely that the book purports – I mean, the, the utility of a phrase book like this is that it is in alphabetical order right. by word or deed. Yeah. And the book is in alphabetical order – by the French. By the French. By the French words. But oh. it's been translated into English, so it makes absolutely zero <laughs> sense. Of, it's just in some random order. Yeah. If you reverse translate it to French, ah, now it makes sense. It's all it's all alphabetical. Right. But having gone through the filter a couple of times, and that seems like uh, that that seems like Carolino, whoever he was. Because we know we know nothing about his biography. No, we know nothing about him Mystery or if he's man. real at all. There, there, there was a translator actually working at the time, uh, uh, a Portuguese translator by the name of Pedro Carolino Duarte, mm. who specialized in translating German novels to Portuguese. But he is he was a respected and and um, talented translator. So there's very little chance that he would have signed off on this. The, and and also, if you're going to write under a pseudonym, right. just taking your last name away doesn't seem to work. So it it's unclear like who would have capitalized on the on the need for this book and been so ineptly like unqualified to do the work. And and not the person might not have known it was bad work, and so. Why would they have left their name off it? I mean, I, I guess it could be synonymous knowing that it was a quickie job and maybe not good work. Or maybe there really was a Pedro Carolino. Yeah, who didn't know it was bad. And I think if you weren't if you weren't acquainted with language, um, or if, or rather if you spoke a Romance language but didn't have a, a, a very clear conception of Germanic language or, you know, or linguistics as a whole, you might have, you might feel like this was, th this was actually doable. Um, that this kind of. Does it do the job? Does it, does it produce funny sentences that still communicate the, the, uh, the meaning or not? Well, here, here's the, here's the introduction, uh, to the book as written by Pedro Carolino. And I'll just, you know, what I was saying, I guess, is that, the challenge of looking at this is that you kind of just want to spend 20 minutes reading hilarious examples. Yeah. But that can be um, left as an exercise to the reader. Yeah. Assuming this is in the rubble somewhere. And what's, what's funny is that people cherry pick the, the, the goofy ones, Oh, you know, like, yeah, if you can imagine. Does that mean for the most part it's, it's okay? 
No, that's oh. the it, the opposite is true. People <laughs> cherry pick the goofy ones, and in reading them, you're like, ha ha, you know, it's kind of like, oh yeah, Japanese T-shirts. Uh, but in fact, reading the entire volume, and I haven't read the whole thing, although the 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 original version was over 200 pages. Oh, wow. m- most of the English translations that have made it all the way to now, because it's available as an ebook, it's on Kindle. Sure, um, it's only 60 pages long. And it's pretty breezy, but the fun of it is like everything is fun. The, even the ones that are right, he, he appends articles to words that don't take articles. He pluralizes words that, that don't take plurals. Like even the little things are funny. Are these current ebook versions, um, then just excerpts? Like they don't, they don't have the full text? No, they are, uh, the the book got condensed over time. I but, mean, the but condensed ori- typographically, or it's missing stuff. It's missing stuff. I think because as it passed through all these permutations, there was no copyright, and so the English translation, the the one published in the UK, was borrowed from. Uh, I think the the UK versions and the American versions as successive. Uh, editions were published, they borrowed from one another and they're all kind of based on the second edition of the book as published in France. So, so it's, it's a game of telephone continuing. Yeah. Like the, uh, a couple of the things that happened, the, the second edition, like the first edition seems to have been corrected at the typesetters because in the second edition, all the capital I's where you would say like I, you know, the 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 first person pronoun, uh-huh. uh, they're all lowercase, <laughs> and in the first edition they weren't. But sort of the the literary for, forensic uh, somebody had an older manuscript. Well, and it, and and it seems like the lowercase I was was how it was written. Yeah, yeah, and that had been corrected by a typesetter. But also within the typesetting, the the um, the English. All the English in it is written in italics, and the italic capital I and the italic lowercase t are almost indistinguishable. Mm. So a lot of the funny or, you know, the, the, the absurd words like, like rubble for trouble and uh, go low sleep for go to sleep, it's maybe just... Somebody misreading a font. Yeah, right. The font was bad. Um, but here, here, here is here's the the introduction to the book, and it's not as funny as some of the, you know, like some of it because of the archaic nature of the 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 English that was in the dictionary. You know, you have things like he lists a bunch of games uh-huh. that are very popular in the English speaking world, like Gleek. Uh, we love to play Gleek and Mall and uh, Pile and Keel. <laughs> These are some of the the. These are drugs in science fiction movies. <laughs> the most. I'm a high, I'm a, I'm high to my eyeballs on Gleek yeah, pile and keel. You do like to get high on Gleek, but yeah. So let me let me read the introduction. A choice of familiar dialogues, clean of gallicisms and despoiled phrases. It was missing yet to studious Portuguese and Brazilian youth, and also to persons of others nations that wish to know the Portuguese language. We sought all we may do to correct that want. Composing and devising the present little work in two parts. 
The first includes a greatest vocabulary proper names by alphabetical order, and the second 43 dialogues adapted to the usual precisions of the life. For that reason, we did put, with a scrupulous exactness, a great variety own expressions to English and Portuguese idioms, without to attach us selves, as make some others, almost a literal translation, translation what only will be, for to accustom the Portuguese pupils, or hyphen foreign, or foreign, to speak very bad any of the mentioned idioms. <laughs> but you know what? It's perfectly comprehensible. It is, right. Uh, and this is, this is what makes it kind of delightful. Yeah. I mean, it's a delightful read. It's not just gibberish. It's proto. It's para gibberish. Like when they said "of the life" instead of "of life," that's a very um, literal translation from a Romance language. But it kind of has the feeling of a Japanese uh, pencil box or, yeah. or sweatshirt. The works which we were conferring for this labor fond use us for nothing. <laughs> but those what were publishing in Portugal or out. They were almost all composed for some foreign or from some national little acquainted in the spirit of both languages. He's really hard on other uh, phrase books considering is. how he doesn't know how his is going to be received. It was resulting from that carelessness to, to rest these works, fill of imperfections and anomalies of style in spite of the infinite typographical faults, which sometimes invert the sense of the periods. It increased not to contain any of those works, the figured pronunciation of the English words, nor the prosodical accent in the Portuguese, indispensable, uh, indispensable object whom wish to speak the English and Portuguese languages correctly. So I'm not sure why the introduction should be in English at all. Well, right. It's for, it's for Portuguese, it's for Portuguese writers. <laughs> Most hilariously, this book was not published in Brazil until 2002. Oh, it finally made it home. And it has never been published in Portugal. But it did become a super big hit in the English-speaking world. And I wonder once, if anybody made a penny or if it's like the Tolkien situation where the actual people with the rights never saw, never saw a penny. I think by the time it was, by, by 1883, when it was published in the English-speaking world, there were no, there, it, yeah. was, it was a free-for-all. It was a found object. Yeah. And, um, and it sparked a kind of... Uh, Within a, within the literary culture, um, a, a, a kind of delight in this sort of language absurdity that maybe is part of the echo reverberating through uh, it. It began the familiarity with this as a as a gag, right? It's an audience that never would have seen broken English as a gag, which you could not say today. You know, we've we've seen a million cartoon characters speak bad English and we've seen the Japanese um, three hole binders and right. like it's a trope to us. They had just discovered that broken English could be funny. And you know what? This was also happening when um, American humorists would go to Europe. They would be immensely popular um, kind of uh, music hall speakers, just kind of reading funny colloquial American uh, kind of travelogue stuff. And when they when the when it was published in English in, uh, in overseas or in America, it would it would be written in bad spelling and stuff. So that was kind of how that was the American kind of flat voice, just being laughed at by Europeans because it was English but slightly off. And I guess we had just discovered at the same time it could come from other countries. It became a, it became like a 
uh, a new style of uh, hilarious um hilarious gag book for the well traveled um there was a book published then in the in the aftermath of um english as used in paris for the you know what would have been a new class of americans venturing to paris so you and you see it today right the the menu that's printed on both sides the yeah. the one in french and the one in english on the other side but um uh in 1867 so this would have been before the english trans or the before this became a comedy book in english before it catches on here there was already a a book of hilarious mistranslations of french to english for the amusement of an english audience ah. uh it was called it was pr- published by edward gould buffum and it was just examples of Parisian English. So, um, you know, some excerpts like, oh, these are these are translations of uh, that appeared in the Times International. So, you know, a, a, a newspaper for an English audience, but translated from the French. Um, a Belgian manufacturer having a practice of large scale in Mercerie and Quincalerie is desirous to have the deposit of filleted articles to this place or to be compassionated, oh no, I'm sorry, to be commissionated by important houses for these articles. A late provincial trader, Hyung and married, desires to obtain an employment or guérance in a commercial house in Paris or outskirt. He would give, if wanted, a bailing. And there is something condescending about that, right? Yes. To an English audience at the time. Look at these frogs. They can't even speak the Queen's the King's English. Yeah. And 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 uh, uh, or Queens, I guess. A new uh you know, a new group of what would be, I guess, middle class travelers, right? That's the appeal is that uh an upper class audience wouldn't even maybe be experiencing menus and they would probably all be fluent in French. Right. Uh, and, and that's where you get the stereotype of the British traveler who's just very upset that these, um, you know, these Greeks can't get their mind around speaking English. Why couldn't they? Right. The dumbest people back home can. But one one extra thing that's happened is that the Carolino effect, which is um, which is just the effect of sending something through not just a foreign language, but sending. Uh, uh, a text through a couple of different multiple attempts to translate it into p- common parlance. It's now the Carolino effect is now something that gets referred to within tech uh, because you'll get kind of a conceptual instruction manual or something. And it's not even translating it through a foreign language, but just you, the instructions or a, or a guide to the conception of a kind of technology gets translated into uh, translated by someone into lay terms, and then gets then re-inputted into technical language yeah. through you know through this intermediary. It had to be business speak at one point, or user speak, or right, and it becomes gibberish. But I mean, it's a little bit of a turbo encabulator situation where it's well-meaning attempts to make either academic or technical language readable, and then using that as a basis to 
actually dis- actually use the tech or understand the text and it, and there's a few examples where you um where you realize oh this is this makes this makes sense as words like there's an example of of um using Microsoft Office 97 uh, where the text is, this international standard defines a set of XML vocabularies for representing word processing documents, spreadsheets, and presentations. The goal of this standard is, on the one hand, to represent faithfully the existing corpus of word processing documents, spreadsheets, and presentations that have been produced by Microsoft Office applications from Microsoft Office 97 to Microsoft Office 2008 inclusive. <laughs> it also specifies requirements for Office Open XML consumers and producers and on the other hand, to facilitate extensibility and interoperability by enabling implementations by multiple vendors and on multiple platforms. And it goes on and on and on, right? Yeah, like just pages. just pages and pages of, of uh, ultimately gibberish, right? And it's not gibberish written to mock, but gibberish that's just been through uh, too many meat grinders. So this this entered into the culture, and I think that you know uh, my exposure to it was then third hand, and I think that's true for a lot of us. Yeah, I, mean, I, this, saw, I saw excerpts in funny pop reference books, right? Right, exactly. The, these are these are things that popped up. You you I'm sure poured over the um, the early '80s book greatest failures of what what was that dictionary called? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I, I had that. I had that the, book. The, yeah, forty greatest flops of history or something like that. It it found its way into things like that. And then, of course, we see it referenced in Monty Python more than once. Um, you see it in, in Life of Brian, where, uh, you know, Brian is out painting graffiti on the Roman wall and the centurion comes along and goes, what? You know, and gives him the, uh, gives him the Latin lesson. But it's, you know, it's, it's a side wink at at this kind of bad translation, but even more famously, an early Monty Python skit called the Dirty Hungarian Phrasebook is almost an exact, uh, you know, an exact reference to this. I just watched it this week at Big Time Bader Meinhof. How did, how, is, this is just co- coincidence? Yeah, we have, uh, my wife and I, are, we got the Flying Circus on Blu-ray that's out now, and we've been kind of going through the episodes in order, and we just happened to get to the penultimate episode of Series 2, this week and saw the naughty Hungarian phrasebook sketch. Yeah. It, it's amazing how much of Monty Python you don't realize you needed to understand the, the breadth of their reference. You know, you can watch all that stuff and just love it as a kid and then see it in a new light as a teenager. And then again, as an adult, and then in your fifties, you're like, Oh wait, this is all referring to, it takes decades to get the equivalent of a Cambridge education <laughs> yeah. in the sixties. Right. It's, it's, uh, it's like reading Moby Dick, which I'm doing again now. And the, the, you know, the onslaught of reference in order to truly appreciate that book, you would have to be fluent in the Bible, the Greeks, Shakespeare. I mean, as everyone was. Every educated person was in 1850. Uh, and now, I mean, I'm just like, I, f- I feel like calling you 20 times a day. Like, what is this reference? There is some pleasure to just letting that kind of stuff wash over you. Yeah. Though, you know? It's, like, it's like beautiful. You, you can tell it's authentic and beautiful and you're like, I don't know what yeah. this is. But look, that sounds kind of vaguely Mediterranean. That's yeah, great. Like, I'm not going to read the Iliad again just so I understand the the nuance of this 
this reference to a whale because it's always you know a, just yes. an aside, right? It's yeah. not key to the text. It's just like, yes. oh well, as you know, as as Aristarchus would have said about the great beasts of the deep or whatever. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Do you have any more little excerpts from? I, I would like to hear a little more of English as she has spoke. Do you have any highlights? Yes, or, absolutely. Or low or lowlights. I mean, you can just begin at the top. Um, here are some parts of the human body. The brain, mm-hmm. the brains, the fat of the leg, <laughs> the ham. Uh, How to recognize different parts of the body. This is a Python sketch too. The inferior lip, the superior lip, the marrow, and the reins. That's where the reins first make their appear, appearance. Um, here are some, uh, some what are described as defects of the body or disabilities. Uh-huh. A blind, a lame. A bald. <laughs> a, a blind, a lame, and a bald walk into a bar. <laughs> a left-handed. Oh. An ugly. And that's a good example where he did get the, he did get an as opposed to a. Good job, Pedro. Uh, a squint-eyed. Also one of the bad. <laughs> these are like the 10 kinds of people there are in, in old-timey books. Here, here, then these aren't even phrases. These are just like right at the top of the book. Here are some trades. Starch maker. <laughs> coffee man. A uh, pork shopkeeper. These are all the superheroes and mystery men. There's a nailer, a stocking mender. Uh, there, uh, here's one of the trades: Chinaman. <laughs> one of the jobs that you can have. Do you think that means porcelain? Do you think it, it went it went back and forth that way? I have no, I have no idea. And you can see how, how you can see the appeal of uh, of this book. Like here are some some of the different servants you might have in your home: a coochman with two ends, coochman. <laughs> Uh, a spinth. <laughs> what does that even mean? <laughs> uh, come here, spinth. I'm definitely laughing hardest at the at the least explicable ones. Yeah, right. Um, here are some uh, some parts of a town. Good to know. Uh, which are described as parties a town. <laughs> the butchery, the sink, <laughs> the low eating house. <laughs> The obelisks with a <laughs> with a hyphen, the obelisk hyphen. So, uh, and then you get further down um, into the phrases. I mean, there there are so many wonderful. Here are some college degrees you could get. These are like McSweeney's pieces. Yeah. Well, oh, and actually, McSweeney's has recently republished oh, is that the right? book. It really does fit. That's funny. It really does fit right into there. Here are here are some um let's see. Oh the sh- uh chivalric orders. Black Eagle Avis Calatrava. We we uh, all of these are uh, uh, appear in our uh, own armies. Um Saint Michael Mass. <laughs> Uh, at the very top, there's very merit. There's uh, one of the chivalric orders is elephant. Yeah, very interesting. The order of the elephant. But so here are uh, here are some here are some phrases. Uh, these are just familiar phrases that you might use in English. Go to send for. Have you say that? Have you say that? Have you understand that he says? At what purpose have say so? Put your confidence at my. 
at what o'clock dine him? <laughs> Apply you at the study during that you are young. <laughs> I don't even know. what Most of those I can tell what the use case was, but yeah. I'm not sure about the last one. These apricots and these peaches make me and to come water in mouth. <laughs> See, that one uses the Python thing of the weirdly specific phrase. Like, yes. why does it even say, my hovercraft is full of eels or whatever? <laughs> there it is. These are the dishes whose you must be and to abstain. <laughs> uh, uh, here's, a, here's a strange one where some German got in. This meat is not to overdo. <laughs> the ink is white. The room is filled of bugs. <laughs> are those the same... Are those the same sentence? Just right next to one another. Two phrases that you might use. The ink is white. Yeah. (laughs) This girl have a beauty edge. Uh, And on and on. Every one of them great. He do the devil at four. (laughs) He make to weep the room. Do you find you um, OD on it? Mindy is reading uh, the new Charlie Kaufman novel, and she will laugh out loud on every page, but she can only read about a page or two at a time just because... You can't do absurdity for that long. I think of it as the as the Douglas Adams problem for me. Like the first Hitchhiker's Guide book was the greatest thing I'd ever read, and by the third one, for some reason, I, and I I took the books out and compared their prose to one another, trying to figure out like, is the third book not as funny, or have I just become so accustomed to the tone that I yeah the discovery of the voice it's just not was the funny thing. I just, I mean, the thing is, you keep, you, you do get a little bit inured to it, but then you get to take care to dirt yourself. <laughs> since do you, since you not go out, I shall go out, nor I neither. <laughs> and I, some of it, I, I think, is best read aloud. Right? This, this is perfect to sit around a, a cocktail party if you can take out. And what's nice about Portuguese. And and imagining like a like a Brazilian student in a bowler hat, or a uh, it would have been yeah. a top hat at this time, trying to you know impress someone on the streets of New York, looking up from his book with the little glasses, pinching his nose. It takes some of the kind of uh, the inauspiciousness of the colonialism away, you know. Like um, uh. it would not be as funny if this was Indonesian or. Um, you know, kind of the further away you get from from the downtown salon, the less and the the more and more kind of uh, mocking it seems. And there's just even the difference between someone from Lisbon and someone from Sao Paulo. Yeah, uh, there's it becomes that greater gulf. I think that wouldn't have been true in 1889. You have to imagine our, one of our wealthy rubber baron characters, right? Uh, saying uh, she have a, the beauty edge or whatever. Yeah, the only the only Portuguese person that would have used this phrase book would be someone who s- said to their coochman, <laughs> "Coochman, have my spent bring, bring my my phrase book forward so that I might impress this young lady at the ball." You'll laugh so hard you'll dirt yourself. <laughs> that may dead if I lie you. And that concludes English as she has spoke. Entry 414.GE1107. Certificate number 29469 in the omnibus. Uh, Futurelings, as you must be aware, we lived in a dark era of social media. As a result, uh, you could find our little enterprise at Omnibus Project on various social media outlets. On Facebook, the best way to find uh, Omnibus and its... 
uh, ecosystem was to find the Futurelings Facebook group, a delightful set of people who are. Um, let's look in today. Let's look. Uh, my eye drops to the land farm. Let's see what they're doing today. They're talking about uh, a recently discovered omnibus. Or omnibus. A recently discovered Mozart compositions. Uh, about Eddie Izzard. Mm-hmm. About Nashville having its own Parthenon replica. They're a lot of fun. There are similar groups on Reddit and Discord. Uh, you can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Or uh, send us things. I have a few mailbag items here. This is a book addressed to you, John. Maybe it's a Christmas present. Let's see here. A book addressed to me, but on the outside, it's addressed to the Omnibus Project. Oh, I see. Care of. He says Omnibus Project Care of. Oh, it's New York Review of Books. Oh, look at this. It's a time of gifts by Patrick Lee for more. Oh, I love, I love, um, is it Fermore? I've never known how to say it. Fermore. The great, great travel writer. And and I've considered doing him as an omnibus entry because, you know, he also was a great spy. Oh, really? Patrick Lee Fermore went on to become a World War II hero as a, uh, like, a espionage type character. I've read these books. I, I should say... These books are about his great walk across Europe. Yeah. Uh, when they were first introduced to me after I had walked across Europe, and that's that's there for you at home who are playing Omnibus Bingo. Yes, I, we, we mentioned it again. Uh, but uh, these books infuriated me because he had such a good time. And I did not have a good time. The point of me doing that trip was not to have fun. And he did have fun. So your book would not be a time of gifts. It would be a time of... A time of, of hair shirts. <laughs> a time of, of great discomfort. Fun for more fact, the uh, the old expat character in the last Before Sunrise movie is based on Furmore. And I think it was oh. the whole thing was shot at his estate. Oh, really? Yeah, or the place where he lived, his home in Greece. Uh, we got some postcards in the last show, and I got the. I did not know the name of the sender. It was Alan. Little erratum there. Oh, good. Thank you, Alan. Thank for, you, Alan. For sending us those. We, we got this note from um, someone with a, I think it looks like it's from Andrew, or that's the name on his official seal. Look, it's got a wax seal. And it's dark blue, and I asked, my daughter had just read a book on what different colors of sealing wax mean, because she just got a kit to do it. And did she, you ever have a, a kit? I never did. I did. I wish I did. I had one. I could steal my daughter's. He, he, uh, I asked her what, um, what the different colors mean, and she looked up blue, and she says, it's blue is for passion. And the deeper the blue, the more passionate the note. That's a very deep blue. This is the deepest blue I can imagine. So I'm about to open one of the most passionate correspondences we've ever received. And I'm. I love all the different signals that people used to have to convey. It's hanky codes. Hankies. Oh, it's just a it's just a Christmas card. But sent with passion. It's a beautiful card and and a lovely sentiment. But um, after the passionate wax seal, I was I was ready for something a little a little hotter. And then what's all this? What's going on here? Oh, it's we got Christmas presents that we now, are now opening belatedly. And the, um, oh, this is amazing. Instead of packing peanuts, look what the packing peanuts are. I cannot see. Oh, they're origami swans. <gasps> Hundreds of origami cranes in or lieu cranes. of, a lieu of, they could be swans, in lieu of uh, packing peanuts. I don't know which That's is. That's um, kind of wonderful. 
This is from, it looks like maybe Dawn with a W if I'm reading the. Uh-huh. It is, it does appear to be Dawn. If I'm reading the. We each get a book, it seems like. Uh, mine's a book. Is yours a book? It feels like a book. I like that we are getting books as gifts. I got a guide to the wildflowers of California. Oh boy, what did you get? I got a guide to cooking on your car engine. <laughs> well, one of these is a more practical guide than the other. No, this is very thoughtful. She says, I know you like to hike and you're spending more time in California. Very thoughtful. Uh, well, apparently you can cook on your car engine and these are not things I knew. Here's, there's a, there's a little, uh. The name of the book is funny. It is. I'm not sure why this book screamed John to me. Maybe it's the combination of road trips and roasted meats. Either way, adventure awaits. But you have not said the funny name of the book. Manifold Destiny. You love it. Lol. You, you weren't going to say it because it was a pun. No, it's good. But it's it's good and I and I do like it now. You do not have to send us Christmas presents just because you listen to our podcast. But um, what a lovely gesture. But why not? From those who did. Uh, thanks. Uh a belated Merry Christmas to all who celebrate and to everyone who didn't send us a present. You can feel bad for next year. Uh, I mean, those of you who celebrate Hanukkah should have sent us seven, seven presents or eight. If you count the middle candle or Shamus. Yeah. I don't know. Do you, do you get a present for the middle candle? Yeah. Yeah. Eight crazy nights. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Send us eight presents for crying out loud. (laughs) Even though this episode is airing in March. March. (laughs) (laughs) And you've probably found, Thousands of years later, when Hanukkah has finally overtaken Christmas and has all the good traditions. Once again overtaken Christmas. Ah, okay. Right? Yes. Yes, exactly. Right. Christmas, Johnny come lately. I'll tell you what. Uh, the uh, best, uh, honestly, the best present you could give us is a regular infusion of cash. I, mean, I think we can all agree what makes the most thoughtful gift. Here, here. And that is Patreon support. You, if you, uh, That's if, true to anybody that you're giving Christmas presents or Hanukkah presents or Kwanzaa presents to. Yes, give them all uh, a donation to our Patreon. Yes, here, here. In, in their in name. In their name. <laughs> you can, uh, if you like the show and want to be part of its support community and get some of the uh, wonderful perks we provide to our Patreon supporters, go to patreon.com slash omnibusproject and... Uh, Pull out your uh, pull out the, your, your pockets. Mm-hmm. See see what you got in there. Send us your lint. Dig around in the couch in the form of money, uh, and uh, become a supporter. Uh, we rarely hear from people who regret it. We 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 don't get letters saying how much people dislike the Patreon. That's right. Once people give to the Patreon, the the next thing that happens is that they up their contribution. No one ever stops donating <laughs> to the Patreon. Possibly they leave and don't tell us. No, no, no. But we watch the we watch the figures and they never go down, only up. It's amazing. It's just like uh just like GameStop stock. Mm. Future links from our vantage point in your distant past. We have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. If the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.